God, God the Father, in His providence, makes sure that there's a large and and um, influential crowd of witnesses there to see it, and that these people then are really fired up, and they go back to Jerusalem. Bethany is only two miles away, so this is on the doorstep of Jerusalem when that resurrection happens, and and they and they're two months later. Now they're still buzzing about that when Passover comes. And so that feeds into his popularity and it helps us understand why there was so much excitement in Jerusalem when Jesus was riding in on that donkey, uh, you know, on the 10th of Nisan, uh, uh, several days before the Passover. Right? And then, then there's this weird juxtaposed against all that excitement. And remember, there's probably a million plus people in Jerusalem that have come for the Passover celebration. Uh, and so you would think, okay, now's the time when he's going to bring the kingdom, right? This is the Messiah. He's going to bring the kingdom. All those Old Testament prophecies are finally done. People are so excited. Remember, they welcome him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David, right? They're just all excited. A few days later, he's being crucified. How do we reconcile this, right? Was he the Messiah or not? So what I'm trying to help us understand is to, to take our minds out of 2,000 years of church history where we look back as Gentiles and we see the cross and we focus so much on that to, to, to realize just how hard it was for, for, for the Jews, God-fearing, self-respecting Jews who wanted to believe that he was the Messiah. It was really hard for them to reconcile what they knew from the scriptures to be true about the Messiah with what Jesus actually did, what happened to him. And so it's very easy for them to think, well, maybe God's plan got <clears throat> sidelined somehow. You know? And we're going to see, this is important to keep in mind as we proceed in John, because even like when it comes to his arrest, okay, John is unique in that he, he makes sure that we know that when Jesus stepped forward to say, whom are you seeking? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, you remember what he, what he says to them? He says, I am. I am he. Okay. And what happens to them? They drop down. They fall backwards. The only gospel tells us that. Why? Because John wants to make sure that any sincere Jewish person who's really struggling with, yeah, I really <coughs> think he was the Messiah, but how does that reconcile Scripture? He wants, us, he wants to make sure that we understand that Jesus was not a victim of circumstances. There were at least 200, a mix of Roman uh, soldiers and temple guard that came to arrest him. And he, it wasn't an overwhelming force that he couldn't overcome. Okay. Um, so it's very important. Those little details, look for, the, look for those little details like that. And, and what, we're, what we're saying here on these notes is, and that's, that's the whole point of that section there on your notes about Old Testament quotations, is that in all four Gospels, okay, when they quote from the Old Testament scriptures, it's not filler. Okay. Oh, yeah, I know that. Okay. Well, it's important to show how he fulfilled scripture. And here's the point it's God's plan all along. This Messiah was intended from the beginning to not just be the mighty victor and conqueror to come in and take care of Israel's enemies and, and, and reverse the curse and establish the eternal kingdom. But he was also planned to be that one who is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, right? We consider him stricken of God. You know, uh, the Psalm 22s and the Isaiah 53s and other parts of the Old Testament have to be fulfilled. All right, so what Paul, what Paul was doing, last time we looked at Romans, okay, and I'm sorry, I'm skipping over. I know there's a lot here. There's a lot of dots to connect. I'm trying to help us do that. But Paul, let me put this this way. In, in, if you look at verse, our, the first verse, so outline, first point on our outline, verse 37, right? Starts at verse 37. And <clears throat> that's the point that John is trying to make here is that the rejection of Jesus by the Jews has been God's plan all along. And by the Jews, we mean... Yes, the nation as a nation, but particularly the, the leaders as the, you might say, the mouthpiece, the spokespeople of the, the nation, okay? Um, and, and so that's the sense in which we mean the Jews, the same way that John uses that term, 
Okay, so verse 37, John says this, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, right? How can, it's mind-blowing. It's like, how did they miss the Messiah? You know, can't, there's no disease that he had, <clears throat> including death, that was too hard for him. And it wasn't like, you know, one day you're cleansed of your leprosy, and then the next week, you know, there's spots are starting to show up again, or the man who was born blind starts to lose his vision the next day, and he has to be rehealed. When you, there's nothing that Jesus uh, did that reversed itself, you know, there's no, maybe death, I mean, Lazarus died again, <clears throat> but, um, there's no disease, including death, he couldn't heal, and there's and, and it was it was permanent. It was obvious. It wasn't. Oh, I have a headache. Oh, it's gone now, right? I mean, only the person knows whether that really happened or not. Like some of the psychosomatic healings that supposed healings that happen now. So this question has to be answered: How did they still reject him? Because even as Nicodemus says way back in chapter three, we know you are from God. Why? No one can do these signs unless God's with him. Okay, so John is answering that question. That's what we looked at. And to answer that, what does he do? He quotes the Old Testament, right? He quotes from Isaiah in two different places. And we looked at the first one there, which is uh, verse 38. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, to whom is the arm of the Lord then revealed? And that comes from, yeah, Isaiah 53. Some call that the fifth gospel. It's hard not to read that chapter. If you have a, a, a Jewish uh, friend who is not a believer in, 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 in Jesus as Messiah, um, read to them or take them to or have them read Isaiah 53. <laughs> uh, pretty hard to, to see it any other way. Um, so he quotes from Isaiah 53, and we notice that Paul also quotes from that same passage and is dealing with the same issue that John is dealing with here in Romans 9 through 11. Okay, so that's where we were last time, and I want to take us back there uh, briefly, and we're not going to we're not going to read all three chapters this morning. <coughs> But we did, we did make our way through chapter 9 last time. Okay. What I want to do is show you the connection between what John is, the issue that John is dealing with there in his gospel in chapter um, 12, and what Paul does with that same issue, that same question in chapters 9 through 11. So what, what John answers in a small, you know, couple of paragraphs Paul expands on in three chapters okay he gives us a lot more information so if you want to know more about well how does how does the nation Israel and the giving of the law and all those sacrificial system and all that and then those prophecies for the future kingdom how does all of that fit in with this church age and and God's plan to bring in Gentiles into the kingdom and make them heirs along with, with us, the Jewish people of the covenants and the promises, okay? Paul exp expands on all of that here and deals with it in these three chapters, okay? And we looked at that last time. Uh, he deals with this question. He started with, actually back in chapter 3, the first couple of verses of chapter 3, <coughs> To deal just quickly with well, what advantage then is there being a Jew, right? That's what's asked back in chapter three. And at that point, he says, well, first of all, they've been entrusted with scriptures, right? So the, the Old Testament are, are the scriptures of God, and we talked about that. And that's very important as believers <clears throat> today that we don't, you know, just some people focus so much on the New Testament they forget that other part, that dusty part, <laughs> unused part of your Bible, right? But you can't do that. It's all the Word of God. And it's an integrated whole. It's all part of his, what I call the grand plan of redemption. 
And, uh, and so it's very important we understand what's in Genesis, even the boring books, right, uh, are all part of God's word. And, and Paul acknowledges that, and he says back in chapter 3 to his Jewish members of his audience, listen, after he just got through blowing, blowing them away in chapter 2, he says in chapter 3, well, there are advantages in being a Jew. First of all, you have the scriptures. But then he comes back later. He saves all the rest of what that list looks like, the advantages of being a Jew. And he saves that for chapter 9. Okay, and, uh, and, and so he has a lot more to say. And then he comes back to that point in chapter 9. So that's what we looked at last time. And he says, um, can you imagine that? Verse 3, uh, Romans 9, 3, he says, I would wish myself accursed for my brother. And that's how much he wanted them to be saved, to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, even as he had come to understand that, right? These were his brothers. These were his friends. I mean, we've all talked about our testimonies, uh, you know, and, and the people in your life, maybe in your past, especially before Christ, that now, you, you love these people, you have a heart for them, right? But there's, you're just not on the same page at all. You're, you're, they are going one way in life, and you're going a totally different way because of Christ. And Paul feels that heavily in his heart. That's a strong statement. That's why I think he, he builds up to it so much there. He says, I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's in there. He knows this is true. That I have great sorrow and continued grief in my heart. And I have wished myself accursed for my fellow uh, heirs according to the flesh who were Israelites, right? And then, and then in verse four is the rest of that list. Okay, not only do they have the scriptures, but they they have the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, of whom are the fathers, and through whom, according to the flesh, came the Lord Himself, right? So there, there's advantages to being a Jew, but just not for eternal things. There's some temporal advantages, certainly having the Word of God. You know. Um, <clears throat> Being, if you were raised in church around the, the gospel and good sound preaching like I was, there's an advantage to that. There's also a responsibility, nonetheless. Okay, and I'm very keenly aware of that. Um, the Lord is to whom much is given, what much requires. Much required. All right. So that was certainly true of the nation Israel, and uh, so anyway. But Paul again is dealing with the same question: <clears throat> How could the nation miss the Messiah? Just like John's dealing with it, he's dealing with it here. And but what he does is he tells us, first of all, Israel's past, and then their present, and then he deals with their future. That's sort of the outline of these three chapters. Um, and he says that it's it's um, it's according to God's purpose. That starts with verse six and goes to verse um, can I thirteen. A I don't yeah. know where you're at. Are Romans. You're Romans. Romans. Nine. Romans nine. Romans nine. Okay, thank Romans you. Nine. Okay. And so beginning with verse 6 in Romans 9, um, it's not as if the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are Israel, right? Uh, and then he, he uses this illustration of the seed, right, that, that the, the, to Isaac, it's not all the seed of Abraham that God promised to bless, but all those are Isaac. And then um, further, uh, that Jacob and Esau that it's not um, the older will serve the younger, right? That's verses 12 and 13, okay? But as is written, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated. In other words, it's God's elective choice, right? That some in Israel, even though the nation, and I think this is what help, has, has helped me understand this, okay? There are, in the, in the Scripture, God gives temporal covenants, that is, for for the time in which we live now. So the Abrahamic and Davidic covenant and so forth, those are, the Messianic kingdom is a temporal kingdom. Okay? But then there's an eternal covenant, a new covenant which he gives that Jesus establishes that is that is to carry us, God's people, into eternity. Right? The, the earth as we understand it now is going to be destroyed. That includes the promised land. And there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth created. That's the eternal covenant, eternal state. Um, so if you separate those covenants in your mind that way, it helps. So what Paul is saying is, you know, there's advantages temporally 
for being a Jew, but that doesn't guarantee that you're going to participate in this temple kingdom that he's going to bring. And so Israel's rejection and God's justice starts in verse 14. Again, Romans 9, verse 14. Um, and, and he deals with this thing, you know, well, is God unjust? And remember, we dealt with the hardening of hearts, right? And he uses the illustration of Pharaoh. And he says, well, and if you go back and Paul doesn't do all this because he assumes the reader has done their homework too, right there, where he just kind of summarizes what happened. But when you go back and read those that account in Exodus where, where Moses and Pharaoh are fighting back and forth for let my people go. And, no, I'm not going to do that. Okay, well, you can go a few days and you come back, right? And, and this whole thing, and they go through all the plagues and all that. When you read that whole thing, it says at times that, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. But other times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, right? And so what Paul is dealing with here is for the thinking, and, and we should be thinking as Christians, right? Amen. <laughs> The word of God comes first to our minds um, and cleanses them, and then your emotions come later. Okay, not the other way around. Um, but anyway, so for the thinking person, you're going to be like, well, did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Did that Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? And the answer is yes. yes. How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? By letting Pharaoh's heart do what it was going to do naturally. Okay, That's the key. It's not that God actively, it's not that Pharaoh was, was starting to get a soft heart. God said, oh, no, you can't do that. I'm going to harden your heart. Like, what, he did, what he does is by not transforming or changing Pharaoh's heart, he's, so indirectly he hardens his heart that way just by letting Pharaoh do what he's going to do anyway naturally. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's so a good. Three good verses that God, uh, God God's, God's sovereignty. Yes. Yeah. Okay, um, so so what Paul is saying is he's using that illustration to say just like that happened with Pharaoh, that's also happened with the majority of the nation in the past. Okay, and so there's he uses he introduces us to this concept of the remnant. The remnant. So the remnant will be saved. Okay, um, not the entire nation, uh, but Israel. And this is uh, again notice how many quotations in chapter nine from the Old Testament that Paul makes. In Hosea, starting verse 25 there, right? And then Isaiah uh, several times, starting verse 27, and so on. So then when, then we come to verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained a righteousness and even the righteousness of faith, but Israel <coughs> pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by works of the law. They stumbled at the stumbling stone. And then he, you know, he quotes again from the Old Testament scriptures. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone and a rock of offense. If whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. How did, how did they miss it? Well, are they to blame? For Rejecting the, the Messiah? They're without excuse. They're without excuse. And that's, again, 37 of John 12, right? Same question. How did they miss them? Even though he did so many signs before them, they said no. Yes, they are. They are responsible for that. But John would be quick to tell you, and Paul as well, that unless the Lord had intervened in their own personal lives, they would have been there too, <clears throat> rejecting the Messiah. It's God's active work in the heart <coughs> to bring regeneration, okay, uh, uh, through the Holy Spirit and to grant repentance. <clears throat> that, that is the hope. And so, so that the remnant then can be saved. The remnant of Jews and as true Gentiles today. Let's call it the ritualism. I mean, wasn't it just the way they, they taught the Jews and the The ritualism? The ritualism? Yeah. Let's call it the mass. That's all they saw, wasn't it? The biggest part of them. It's not even the rituals that they're worried about in chapter 11. What do they remember? Remember when the, when the Sanhedrin gathers? And they're debating about what to do with Jesus. 
this was right after the raising of Lazarus, right? And they, we got we have got to deal with this guy, right? So they call this meeting. What were they worried about? Power. Power. If we don't deal with this man, the Romans are going to come and take away both our place and our nation. What's our place? That's my office. That's my role, responsibility. It's my power and, and the nation. And they're going to take away my money as well, too, the influence and everything I know, right? So, yeah, the traditions are fine, but it's really self interest that they're serving. It kind of reminds me of that two week um, sermon where we where they talk about how, um, you know, like during, um, they were going to be in the promised land and the scouts went out, two came back, six ate, and the other ate, turned them around, and turned them into not having faith in God to like not be able to be surprised. That's a great illustration. And they had no they had no reason to disbelieve God at that moment, right? Yeah. That he wasn't going to take care of those giants. And I believe, by the way, that many of them, when they say that were the giants, they were they, you know, Goliath didn't pop up out of nowhere. There right. were there were others around like that, okay? That were very that's a whole other topic. But but they were no nonsense and, and from a temporal standpoint. But they should have Look back at their not too distant past, right? When God delivered them with all of those ten plagues and parted the Red Sea and drowned this, you know, they have all this celebration and they have the whole song recorded there of praise to God as they see the remnants of Pharaoh's army floating around and you know, right? And and then the walls of Jericho, all of that. I mean, I don't know, I just seem like a parallel. Yeah, absolutely. Jewish last names, but they could come 
Schneider, and I know a lot of Poles. Yep. There is a Jewish Messianic Fellowship, Jewish Reckon on the Yep. They're Jewish, but they're simply Jews as a Messiah. Yep, that's right. And, and you're right, exactly right, Nick, that, that Paul calls them the remnant here, right? But it's by God's choice, God's elective choice. And and remember, that's this is all in support of his charge that he's made in chapters 1 and 2 and first half of chapter 3. And that is that Jew and Gentile alike are born with the same sin nature, that we have hearts we can't change, and no amount of good works. We're, we're, we're studying Colossians 2. I was just talking to Dad about, you know, in the morning service, we continue with it. And I was talking to, plus Paul makes that point in there, that, that all of those works of law, circumcision and new moons and Sabbaths and, and ceremonies and ad infinitum, right, is, is none of it can do anything to restrain sensual indulgence. You can't change the internal sin nature of a person with external rules and regulations and, and strictures and that kind of thing. It can't be, it can't happen. And that's what Paul is saying here is they stumbled on that stumbling block. There's a promise of righteousness in the law. The one who does these things will live, right? But the problem is not the law is bad, but that my sin nature, when it comes in contact with the law, now springs to life and I die, right? That the, what the law, here's, here's, it gets back to this question that I keep, I keep saying to you, build this into your thinking in your Bible study, okay? How do you make the invisible visible? By its effect. The Bible deals with so many invisible things. Our sin nature is one of those. Okay? And so what God did was, so he sees it, right? He knows you Jeremiah 9 and Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, right? Heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? What? Next verse. I, the Lord, know the heart. I testify for page, person, accordingly. So he knows that. He looks at us and he says, y'all have a sin nature. And we say, well, I'm talking about, I, I do, you know, what do you mean? Yeah, we do have, we all have. Okay, so, so to prove the point, I'm going to give you the law. And I'm going to give you a conscience. For, for those of you that don't have the written law, like the Jews, I'm going to give you a conscience. And your own conscience and the law together, or even separately, are going to prove to you by the effects in your life that you have a sin heart, sinful heart. Does that make sense? So the things we call sins, sin a lot of times, are really just the effect of the, just the visible effect of the invisible cause. All right, so that's really what, what Paul is saying. He's made that point in early part of Romans, and he's saying, we need something else outside of us. You need another righteousness, and that's where the gospel comes in. Jesus paid for your temporal sins, right? He paid that, that but he also accomplished perfect righteousness, and that double imputation happens where my sin is put on him and his righteousness is applied to me. And then the Holy Spirit comes and through regeneration gives me a new heart so that I'm now fit and ready to live with God in eternity. There's no fresh sin for the believer after death. Why? Because the heart has been taken care of. And when you get a new body, the presence of sin is also there. And we have also, Peter, to, to remember that it's his righteousness, not ours. Exactly. His righteousness that he accomplished. He, that, that promise of righteousness that's in the law, the one who does these things will live, was accomplished by Christ. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's applied to you and I. Okay, yeah. it's important we understand that because a lot of a lot of Christians think, well, it's just Jesus dying for my sin. Well, that's 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 a very necessary ingredient in the recipe of salvation, but it's no no means sufficient. Christ's perfect righteousness is also important, and so is the regeneration. You have to have a new heart, or you're going to sin on the other side of the grave. All right, so let me get off on all that. But chapter ten, goodness. Um, so my, let me just hit a few highlights in, in Romans 10, okay, with us as we, as we wrap up this, this, this idea of, of why did the nation miss their Messiah? Uh, it's, it's, you know, from a temple perspective, we look at that and there's that side, but there's also God's sovereignty in that he has elected this. Um, look at verse five. 
For Moses writes about the righteousness, again, this is Romans 10, Romans 10, verse 5. Let's back up, back up to verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, right? There's another way to obtain righteousness, okay? There's two ways to do it. One is through the law, keeping that perfectly, and that's Paul's point. Look at verse 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things will live by them. Okay, that's one way. Now look at verse 6. Here's the second way. This is the way of faith. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will bring, uh, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring him up, Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we preach, that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. From the heart, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That is the temporal perspective. What I'm going to submit to you is not that this is a magic formula. The Bible isn't magic. The Bible is <clears throat> truth. Okay? There's a difference. You, I know a lot of people, I was thinking about this, even my own brother-in-law, he carries around a, a, a little New Testament in his pocket. But for him, it's like a, it's like a rabbit's foot. It's like, a, it's like a good luck chart, you know? And, and he knows he reads it, but he doesn't really understand it, you know? It doesn't penetrate his heart. It's not, he doesn't have a relationship with God. And it reminds me of what Jesus said in John 5, 39 and 40 to the religious leaders. He said, you search the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life, but these are they which speak of me, and you won't come to me that you may have life. This, the Bible won't save you. <laughs> It's a shock to hear, but you're going to say that in church more, right? Because some people trust the book itself as if knowing this or just carrying it around or having it in your lap or reading it is magic. It's not magic. It's truth. It's here to point us to the living God who does save. He's the one who saves, right? And this is pointing us to him. We learn about him in this. So in verses, I say that all because of verses 9 and 10, a lot of times people <clears throat> interpret that like it's a magic thing, right? So if I if I just say this thing that Jesus is Lord, and, and do you believe in your heart that God raised him? Yeah, I believe. Well, then congratulations, you're saved, right? But what's happening here is that this is all in context of the faith in which God puts in the heart of the believer, right? <clears throat> Romans uh, 2, 8, and 9. He, he puts, uh, by grace, his faith in the heart of the believer, grants uh, repentance and we then as a response this is the effect this isn't the cause this is the effect of god's work in a heart for somebody to genuinely say jesus is lord or uh, confess with your mouth the lord jesus and believe in your heart god has raised him from the dead you don't you don't do that naturally okay you can do that in the flesh okay and that doesn't save you. But the work of God for repentance and recognizing Jesus as Lord uh, comes, um, if it's coming from a genuine place, it comes from a heart that's transformed. For with the heart one believes in the righteousness, the mouth confession is made. Um, so then how did they, uh, verse 14, how did they call on him whom they did not believe? Paul deals with, I don't want to get into all that. Let's, let's move on to, to um, chapter 11. And I apologize. I know we're, there's a lot here. <laughs> um, you can go back and read this all on your own. <laughs> um, look at verse 5 of chapter 11, Romans. Because we're still dealing with this issue of how did the nation miss their Messiah. Okay? Even so, verse 5, Romans 11, verse 5. Even so then... At this present time, there is a remnant according to what? The election of grace. God's elective choice. So yes, there are Jews. Thank God there are Jews who believe. You know, I mean, Paul himself is a Jew who believes, right? Very forcefully brought into the kingdom of God. John is another example. And John gives us other examples even of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and, of course, other disciples. Um, so it's not as if all the Jews have rejected, 
God does have an, a, a remnant, and but it's true also among the Gentiles is that way, right? And perhaps you, like me, you've wondered many times, why is it that these other people that I work with or that I, friends, you know, my family members, neighbors, your Jewish friends, smart people, right? And, and, and you, you could talk to them about, you know, soccer, my team won yesterday, by the way. Ah, United. Um, you know, I talk to them about soccer. I talk to them about technology. And we have intellectually stimulating conversations about anything. But as soon as the gospel gets in there, it's like, they don't get it, right? And, and you wonder, how do I believe? And they don't. The election of God. And I said to you before, I'll say again, unbelief in the gospel is not an intellectual problem. It's a hard problem. God, remember that. You can't convince people in the kingdom of God. You can't give them a magic prayer and they're saved, right? It doesn't work that way. That's why altar calls are so dangerous. They can be dangerous. Yes, yeah. Well, I got saved from an altar call, though. I'm not saying that. I'm I mean, saying I got forward because easy, Poppy, easy, easy. if he hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have gotten saved. I didn't mean that. I'm just saying people do that prematurely. Some people do that prematurely. You see some of these churches and there's like groves of people going up there. Okay. And I, that's where I was still um, going. That's, that, that's a really good truth. I, I'll tell like, I became a believer 10 years ago. Uh, before, I'm just giving my example. 30 years ago, when I was back in Moscow, there was a lot of preachers during the, the 90s, early 90s, a lot of American preachers, David Palmy. And yet, I went there to one of those things, and I went to the altar. Mm. But the reason why I went there, I'll be honest, I went because they begin giving gifts. They begin giving the oh. free Bible, and they begin giving the package of the and some, some, some fools. It was a bad time in Russia back then. A lot of people goes there to the churches and they say, oh, I accept, go to the altar. And after the moment they leave, they, they, they forget about it. They, mm -hmm. they forget about it. You can't, that's why when sometimes you listen to the preacher say, oh, the 500 people came, 500 people did saved. That's not true. Maybe out of 500, one person was saved, but not 500. Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And people chose. I had a conversation with one of the intelligent doctor he's a resident medical resident he was in my room and i asked him a question i said if you're willing to discuss with me fine because i don't want to reported that i'm talking about the jesus right he said no no this is the conversation two hours i had a conversation with him tried to convince him at the end he still told me doctor i'm sorry but i chose not to do mm, uh, yeah and he's a smart guy yeah i, chose not to do I still remember that wow so this is the hard problem. It's not yeah. that Peter absolutely right. So. And you can pray for them. And I'm not saying that you can, you shouldn't have invitations or not have invitations. It's not it's not really even the method. You know, I do think that in the gospel, you know, we're we're called to not just give the news, but also to to say that not me, but God demands a decision. Right? Paul, you study um, Acts 17. Where Paul says that, right? That God has in times of past overlooked the ignorance of men, but now he commands commands all people everywhere to repent. Period. Okay? So that includes you, doctor, right? Or whoever, right? It, 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 you know, and, and if, when you don't do that, you're disobeying God. So, anyway, what I'm saying is, don't get wrapped up in the methodologies. Uh, you know, some there is a danger in having altar calls. We don't do that here because of that danger. But that at the same time, we want to be sure here. And, and this is, I think, at VBS particularly, and the service too, but particularly VBS, which is a which is a gospel outreach of this church, that we need to to say, not push for a a, a, a decision, but to say. You need to decide. You need to repent. Don't just absorb the facts and listen. If the Holy Spirit speaks in your heart, you know you've done things that are wrong. You need to trust Jesus to cover that. You know, put it in simple terms. And it's just not the magic of what you say necessarily, but the fact that the Holy Spirit, if he's ready to work in the heart of a person, he'll do it. He'll do it. And even a phone going off, or I used to get all wrapped up in that, right? I'll get the crying kid out of the service. Listen, the Holy Spirit speaking of <laughs> uh, the Holy Spirit's working, he can overcome that, right?
But you can set the mood in a, in a service, and I've seen that. You know, get the lighting just right, and the music is just right. You know what I'm talking about, right? This is a big deal. And they and they and they they gin up this this whole this whole mood, right? And it's the presence of God, and He's going to really work. And people get amped up, and they get emotional, and 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 it's easy to confuse that with the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So so again, Asbury revival going on, that kind of thing. That's an example of it. Is God using that or not using it? I don't know. I hope that he is. I hope that 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 some of the repentance that's that I see temporally uh, is 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 a genuine fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in those hearts, but only time will tell, right? What's the fruit of the Spirit? Emotionalism and repentance and tears? No, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are that's character. That's that takes time to see that change in the heart. So I was I was just talking to my friend about the revival and we were just kind of like thinking about it. We're just like, you know, there's been so many revivals, supposed revivals over the years, and it's like can't really say it's a spiritual revival unless you see the effects of it. Like like what is a revival? You can't really call something a revival until like, you know, marriages are still together. You know, they're teaching the Bible at home, you know, like those are the effects of it. Just to call it a revival because it's an emotionalism doesn't mean it's actually a revival. You see the effects over time with all these, you know, things happening in the family. You know? So, you're yeah. talking about that. Because your church is doing a study on revivals. And she was like, yeah, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely right. If there's so many revivals, the world's supposed to get better and better. The world's getting worse exactly. and worse. Yeah, that's Everything. right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. So. Which is the effect of sin, right? Exactly. Yeah, the invisible yeah. cause. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm convinced there's a solid church members are already formed and we're among them. There's, a, there's not a lot of true believers. There's some people who say that they go to church they sing the songs, but the moment they leave, they forget about the about the about the Jesus Christ. Yeah. So many people. Because we're also talking about how that's the true revival too. Those people they form like a tight community. You know, they start, you know, forming tight communities of believers and being an example of change for the other communities in their in their state or whatever. It's like that's how you tell that it's a real revival, right? Not like people emotionally just thinking, well, you know, it's just like, I don't know, we were just talking about that. That's right. Really interesting that you brought that up. That's right. Repentance. Uh, but, but the change of desires as well. Anyway, um, Romans 11, <laughs> a couple more highlights here. Um, he goes to the illustration. You remember the illustration of the olive, olive trees, the two olives, you get the wild one and the cultivated one. Picturing Israel, the cultivated olive tree, and the Gentiles coming from the wild olive tree. And he says that some of those branches were taken off to make room for, for some other branches. By the way, it's not the entire olive tree. It's not all Gentiles, right? It's some Gentiles and some Jews that are being brought together. Remember, Jesus said the same thing in John 10, right? I am the good shepherd. I am the dwarf of the sheep, and I am the good shepherd. And he says, there is there are sheep in another flock, and they also I must bring. And there will be what? One <clears throat> flock and one shepherd. Right? He's bringing from the flock of Israel some, my sheep, who hear my voice, and from Gentiles, the other flock, who are also his sheep and hear his voice, and he's calling them out of both flocks to his own. Beautiful picture. And Paul uses the illustration of the olive trees to, to kind of give us the same point. But then look at verse 25. For I do not desire, this is again Romans eleven twenty five. for I do not <clears throat> desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until what? Fulfillment of the Gentiles. That's what I think that we, the Gentiles, I think the church, solid church already formed. There's not a lot of people, but it's formed. We have to be solid Christians. And I believe that Jesus, his second coming is I, I would agree. Yeah, I think we're, I, I think like Paul, what Paul says, I, I like what Paul says. He says, we're nearer now to our salvation than our first birth. That we can say. We don't know when, 
He's yeah. coming. But we can say we're closer now. We're closer now. We're closer But don't miss that point because there is, there, is a, there is a teaching out there with some really solid churches and people that I agree with in a lot of things. But they try to say the church is in Israel. And that's not the case. Paul destroys that in these chapters. It's really clear. So a, a blindness uh, has happened in part. In part, right? Because there's a remnant. It's not all Jews, but 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 many of them, they have been blinded in part uh, to the nation, speaking to the nation as a whole, until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, as is written. Okay, but he he's not saying that all Jews throughout all time will be saved. That Jesus said that himself. He said, unless you, in John eight, he's talking to the religious leaders, and he says. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. Okay, So not all Jews will be saved. What Paul is saying here is that the nation and the end will be saved. And if you understand that, he gives you here the golden key to unlock what the revelation, latter half of Daniel, all of that, all those prophecies that talk about the time of Jacob's trouble, we know is the great tribulation. Okay? Uh, yes, it's a judgment on the whole world, but it's especially a judgment on the nation Israel. To, to as it were, God knows how to, like Dad says many times, He knows how to make you say uncle, right? And, and eventually God is going to make the nation say Jesus. Isaiah 53. Right? He's our Messiah. Isaiah 53 is, is a prophecy of the prayer they will pray, still future to us, when they look back on Him whom they pierced. Right? Excellent people to this point, they did. Tribulation is for the Jewish. He's coming to deal with the Israel, not with the church, because church will be taking power. There will be a rapture. That's right. And I used to be squishy on that until I studied these chapters. And then it's like, okay, yeah, I understand that. Um, yeah, exactly right. Um, so, again, turn move us along. Uh, so, for, for um, again, it is exciting chapters. Read it on your own, right? It's, it's just take time, read it on your own. <clears throat> concerning the gospel, they are enemies, verse 28, for your sake. But according, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. That verse right there puts to bed anybody who would say that those Old Testament temporal covenants, Abraham and David, so on, are really for the church. No, no. No, God's call are irrevocable. It's going to happen. The problem is this. The nation said, we will not have this man to reign over us, but we still want your promises. We still want your blessing, God. And God says, no. Jesus Christ is the one through whom all the promises of God are yes. Right? They are fulfilled in him. And, and that's true today, right? Too, for if you want to participate in the, in the eternal covenant of eternal life with God in heaven, you can't have that and say no to Jesus. That's right. See how it works? Jesus is the means, the funnel through which all of God's blessings and promises are poured out. And if you say no to him, you close the door. That's it. Right? And the nation said no. And so God puts a pause on his plan to fulfill all those temporal covenants while he works with the Gentiles to bring in, and the remnant of Jews, to bring in the church age. And then he will come back to it at a certain time in the future, unpause it, and he, the nation then will say, we accept him, we, and they call out to him, and then he will come. He will answer. Oh, so the Jews awesome. are, are the ones who pray to get Jesus to come back? Yes. Yeah, that's, I mean, if you read Revelation in, in the light of that, it all makes sense. There will. There will be, there are going to be a lot of tears on the lost of opportunity. They're going to say that Jesus coming, second coming. They will regret that they rejected him. During the seven years, he's going to deal with them. Not the entire of the rest of the world, but thanks God, you, Peter, us, we're not going to be there. Amen. We're going to be there. He'll we're come back watch, as the saints. We're going to watch from the heavens what's going on in the earth. That's right. Amen. All right, so let me close with this verse, okay? One of my favorite verses, this is one of the most undersung verses in all of Romans. Romans has a lot of very famous verses in it, right? But this is so key, so important, and yet so uh, underserved and so little known. Paul finally gets the whole punchline, all this chapters, everything he's been saying. And you might be wondering, why is God doing this? Well, here it is in one verse. 
Why has God allowed sin to enter in the human race in the first place? He could have could have prevented that, right? Why, why this hardening of, of the nation, you know, and on all of that? Uh, here it is, verse thirty-two. For God has committed all them all to disobedience, so that He might have mercy. This whole plan is to reveal God's grace and mercy, which was in eternity past unknown. They talk about it, but there's nothing like an illustration, right? Especially when you and I live it. And we're the objects of his mercy and grace. And the reason that he allows us to go through the disappointment of sin, and, the, and, and each of us have our own testimonies, right? And, and I can tell you mine about, about how I thought I was saved for many years. <clears throat> and I played that game. I, I was doing it. I thought I was. Until I found out it was. And, uh, and, uh, and I didn't really realize in fully what, what the Holy Spirit was doing in my heart. Later, after reading the scriptures, looking back, I can see it. But uh, we all have our own testimonies, and, and the pain and the suffering and the things that God has brought us through and is still bringing us through are all working together for His glory and for our good. Isn't that awesome? And no wonder Paul closes by saying, Oh, the depth of the riches of God. You know, who has been his counselor? Who has instructed him? You and I wouldn't cook this Bible. Only God can write something this amazing. He's the father of the play. Exactly right. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> father, I, I realize this this is a little bit like taking a drink from fire hose. There's, yeah. there's a lot here, and, and, and we're looking at it. <clears throat> it's like trying to fly outside of our galaxy to see the whole thing. Um, and it's just immense, this plan that you have, and there's so much rich detail here and and i don't pretend to understand you know all of these <clears throat> these hooks and how to connect all of the dots in the right way but we we thank you that we have some glimpse here of the majesty and the glory of, of this plan of redemption which all points to you you're the greatest invisible thing as it were reality invisible reality that is seen in its effect and we see that effect in creation but even more so, even more so, we see it in this plan of redemption that we call the gospel. We thank you so much that you have, an, you have your sheep who hear your voice and that we have the privilege of being among them, as Nick said, um, not because we have done anything uh, to deserve it or because we're just smarter people. Or, none of that's true. It's your election and your grace and your mercy and we give you the glory for it. And we pray for your blessing on the rest of the service and, and this evening as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.